Let's start with a story. On November 30th, 1888, Robert Gilmore Letourneau was born in Vermont. This was a man who grew up and shook the earth, quite literally. He dropped out of the sixth grade, so he put his hand to many things. He was a woodcutter, a bricklayer, a farmer, a miner, a carpenter, and he grew up to be an inventor and an engineer who settled in San Francisco. Most impressively, the title he received once was Bachelor of Motorcycles, which I one day reckon I'm going to hold. <laughs> so whilst he was in San Francisco there, he started to create machinery that moved earth. Throughout his life, he invented, they reckon, about 70% of the earth-moving machinery and the engineering kit that the Allies uh, used during World War II. He secured over 300 patents for his earth-moving inventions, building a great organization, working across four different continents, and he ended up modeling a life where he lived on about 10% of his income and gave the rest away. But the very crux of his life was when his deep faith in Jesus Christ started to tug at his heart. And he got this sense that he wanted to serve God more. He wanted to know God and let that be known more. And he thought that anyone who was wholly committed to that had to go into the, the realm of getting a dog collar, becoming a, a vicar, a pastor, a church worker, or a missionary to fulfill that great commission. And after praying with his pastor, Reverend Duvall, he got some advice. And he was shocked to hear Reverend Duvall say the words that guided him for the rest of his life. The Reverend said, God needs business people too. Tonight, we see where invitation, entrepreneurship, hospitality can create a pioneering lifestyle that transforms the world around it. And as we get through this together, I really hope tonight is not just about a sermon. It's not about just gaining knowledge. It's not about hearing a talk. This is about us together having a moment in our week where we open up our lives to God where we open up our lives and say, this is what's going on. God, come and speak to me. This is all that I have. Not the stuff I left at home, the stuff I left at the door. We bring it all in tonight. And so I wonder if you were to think about your hopes, your trials, and the people you love, would you bring those in tonight? Could we think about those tonight as well? I wonder where some of those would be in the room. Do your hopes feel close by you tonight? Do they feel distant with your trials? Do your trials feel like you're clutching onto them with your hands? Or do your trials feel like it's something we've maybe left at the altar? And with the people we love, where are they in this space tonight? Have we kept the people we love at the door? Or have we invited them to be around us, beside us? Where are your hopes? Where are your trials? And where are the people you love tonight? Because sermons and church, it's not about gaining knowledge or receiving something and then going home and thinking about it. This is about bringing our whole lives before God that we reckon is interested in that and wants to see them grow and transform. So let's pray. Lord, we give you this time that we have here. We give you our lives. We give you our hopes, our trials, and the people we love. Speak to us, God. What does it mean to, to be people of invitation, to have an entrepreneurship about our lives? 
and to be people of hospitality for this moment here, for this city that we're in, that we love and have seen come alive this month. So we give over ourselves to what you want to do here tonight and the words you want to speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to do a little bit of the context of this passage. We're going to jump into um, ancient Greece, and then we're going to draw out three different things that we see there. Hospitality, entrepreneurship, invitation. So here we are. We're in this story together, and we're looking around at what has happened to these people who are discovering what God is doing in and through them. And we're getting that, cult, that culture, we're getting that context, and we're drawing from it. We're on the roads here. We're on tour with Paul and Luke. We're with the author, Luke, who's not speaking as, a, as an old, distant author. Luke is there. Luke is on the ground. He is experiencing this firsthand. He's not a journalist sitting down like a Malcolm Gladwell or Jeremy Paxman to, to kind of pick apart this story. He was there. He joined the team. It's not this slightly grumpy old Luke sitting behind trying to piece together an ancient tale. He was on the ground living this out. Because Acts is not a book that's just to be studied about how it was written. Acts is a book that is to be lived out, to behold, to encounter. Even as we gather here tonight, this is not just a story to be studied that was recorded. It's a recounting of events. It's a tale of adventure undertaken by ordinary people full of faith, just like ourselves. This story we read tonight is like the stories that we tell each other of what God has done in our lives. It's like the stories we tell each other to encourage us, to remind us. And this week, we are doing the same thing. We are in the story. We are creating moments that we will retell and recount. So you've got Luke, who's on a journey with Paul, and they've been given a clear vision and a clear direction to go in. And he found that there was pace, there was energy, there was a hopping to and fro from ports to cities to boats to roads. He's all over the place and he's moving. And Paul is listening. Holy Spirit, where are we going next? Do we go to the left? Do we go to the right? Sometimes that creates a chaotic journey and a pattern that seems to be all over the place. But on this journey, it was a clear direction. Jesus has unveiled something. He's seeing all these pockets of people on his, on his route. He moves to one place and he sees people. He unveils Jesus and he hears these amazing miracles happen in people's lives. He goes to another place. He unveils Jesus and connects people with God. The called out ones, the church that Jesus is building. I feel like as an aside here, there's something in that very simple part at the start of this passage where they're retelling the steps of a little journey that jumps out. And I just wonder if anyone tonight already has a sense that you know the journey that you're meant to be on. You know the direction and the choices that you're meant to take, um, but you've chosen not to. You've, you've got a clear route, and I want to encourage you tonight to just get on your purpose, find out what it is, find out your purpose, your why. You already have the map. I think you just need the motivation to go for the next step that you're to take. So if that's for you tonight, um, just hold that and ask God what it means. He's on this amazing journey. So he lands in this place, Philippi. It's the leading city of Macedonia. It's Roman through and through. The gods they worshipped were Roman. The culture was Roman. The food was Roman. It's been that way for about 100 years. 
Because before that, there was a battle between those who assassinated Julius Caesar and those who stepped up to, to quell that, Mark Antony. They defeated that, so they decide to leave a sizable team of veterans in the city, and, uh, and they grow there. And it kind of becomes this little Roman retirement village. Um, it's the first time that people are starting to be converted in Europe, and it happens in the retirement village of an empire. Imagine a place like, they say, the Florida Keys or Dorset, or according to the Scotsman, Stockbridge. <laughs> Places of retirement. And there's no synagogue present here. So often they go off on their journeys and they say, where are the people who love to talk about God? They're at the synagogue. Great. We'll go to the synagogue. Nice and simple. They enter dialogue. They discuss with the ideas of the day. It's kind of like them getting involved with um, talking groups or they're engaging in you know, a TED Talk format or something. And they're, they go to this place and there's no synagogue. There's not even, at the time it would have been 10 men who were Jewish who could form a public synagogue. It's so Roman that it's just not the done thing. It's this religious city. And so they know of a place outside the city, down by the river, where some women are gathering to pray. So they are entering an established city of the empire, but they are outside the city. They're in the wild, seeing who else meets in the wild to meet with Jesus. This happens so often. People don't just go to the hub of the city. They meet in wild places to find Jesus. Jesus will appear on the streets. Jesus will appear in dangerous places. And so they get down to this place down by the river, and there they meet this community of women who gather to pray. And there they meet Lydia. And she's a dealer in purple cloth. So we were saying, well, why is this significant? What's so big about purple cloth? Back then, purple cloth is the color of royalty. You're talking an Alexander McQueen design style that royalty wears. This is not someone who's just a, a trader. They are trading in fine goods. They have influence. They're running a sharp business here. And it doesn't mention her husband. So in the period that we're in, this actually indicates she was carrying the business through by herself, through the household she leads. She may have been a widow. She may have never married. We're not sure. But just think here. This is a real Deborah Meaden. This is an Oprah Winfrey, an Anita Roddick, or a Michelle Moan. This is a businesswoman. This is an entrepreneur who migrated there and settled in. And this community that's emerged are a group who fear God. They know God. They follow God and were known as God-fearers. So this group, they weren't born Jewish. They weren't born into the religion. But they'd heard the stories, heard the scriptures, known people's experiences. And they had a faith in God. They'd effectively chosen to follow this way, um, the Jewish way. But at that time, if you were a man and you were doing that, you weren't fully in until you'd been circumcised. So Paul is traveling around telling people this amazing message of Jesus, who says, the God that you've read about, the God you've followed, he's come, he's here, he offers us a full life. He offers us more. Miracles are popping up all over the place. Community and love are springing up everywhere this message goes. And the best part is, you don't need to be circumcised to join in on this. And these days they call that a win-win. So you can see all these people are like, wow, okay, I'm in. And you may never have heard of this Jesus either. You might have seen the man with a lamb and a crook on a stained glass window. 
Have you heard of this Jesus, this wonderful person, fully God yet fully human, living this radical life, giving himself up so that we could know God with all of who we are? Jesus who came and died and then was risen again so that we could live, that we can experience forgiveness for everything that we've done, including that thing that you can't seem to forgive yourself for. Jesus is offering it all. It's a promise of new life. It's a new community. It's new hope. It's resurrection. It's life. It's more than we could hope for. It's the answer to that growing numbness inside. It's the answer to the quietness and peace that is in a breath of being relaxed. It eases chains. It's justice. It's mercy. It's truth. It's hope. It's love. This is the Jesus that we believe in. This is not some remote figure that we study up. This is a living being who has transformed lives. Paul is unveiling Jesus to a world that knows there must be more. He's unveiling Jesus to people who know there's kind of something out there. I don't think we live in this world anymore of yes and no. We're living in a much more confused world, a much more chaotic world. And that brings with it an amazing opportunity for us to know Jesus in that space. We seem to live in a world of maybe, of possibly, a world of what I used to think, a world of my friend says, a world of I just don't really, a world of kinda. And Jesus walks into that space and says, I am. He's shown life there. So here we have this amazing unveiling of Jesus that starts to take place to Lydia and her group of followers. So what are we drawing from this amazing context that we find ourselves in? Firstly, we see an invitation that surprises us. So before he speaks up in this place, Paul sits and waits to be invited to speak among this amazing gathering of women outside the city down by the river. And in this place, the man is out of context. He's out of culture. Here we have a role reversal. In a culture horribly dominated uh, by men, we have a place where they enter a space, they sit, they wait, they're invited, then they speak. They don't step in with their power, with their cultural role. They sit, they wait, they're invited, and they speak. And that wasn't normal for people interacting like that in those days. God's got intention here. That's recorded for us. God is defying culture and recording this, that we could see that he respects no oppression in culture and will use whom he will use. Where do we need to sit, wait, be invited, and speak? Is it in your relationships? Is it in your workplace? Is it with a friend who just doesn't know how to tell him about Jesus? We see an invitation. And through this amazing journey, we see an entrepreneur. Like RJ Letourneau or Anthony Rossi, who started Tropicana, or hosted business leaders in the church here or across Scotland that we see, there are amazing people in business who create possibilities for the kingdom of God um, to to be seen in this world around us. And I want to just linger on this for a little while and see if we can press a few buttons in us 
about how we view business. How do we view people who work in the world to serve the kingdom of God? I think some of you here have a created purpose to enable people to work, for people to realize their potential, for people to not just see the kingdom of God, but to actually experience the kingdom of God in the workplace through that entrepreneurial or pioneering approach to life and business that you have. Because here there's this amazing network of people and connections. There's a supply that Lydia gives to the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus. There's a generosity to share that resource with others. I wonder if our perception today is that entrepreneurs generate money and with that they lavish it on material goods, on massive yachts, on mansions, on the privileged. Perhaps we see it as they they seem to buy honor for themselves or buy into institutions to gain influence within those places. But this here is a redeemed image of business and work and life that we get to see. This is a woman who knows the greater purpose. Entrepreneurship, it's not just about business, it's about a pioneering lifestyle. It's creating from seemingly nothing. It's seeing the possibility amidst the chaos and drawing something from that. This is a woman who knows where everything comes from and knows it comes from the Lord. She knows that her ability to create, to sell, to be hospitable, to gather people around her came from the one who made her and is to be used for the glory of the one who made her. Business here is about worship. I wonder, what's our view of Christians in business? Where do we draw our lines when it comes to Christians who have resource or influence? And I ask this myself and I ask this of us. Do we let people cross a certain line before we start judging them? Or do we let people um, develop a certain influence before we say too far? Do we then lay judgment on people? Not even for what they give away, but for what they receive. And I wonder, what if you are someone, you might be someone here that because of your ability or skill or just jamminess, um, you happen to be promoted or elevated to a position that happens to have a high level of salary or influence attached. Or what if your skill set happens to be applied in a field where the response from that was higher influence or resource coming into you? We have some questions to answer here. I wonder there, do we pray for the same character, maturity, and wisdom and how we use influence and resource? Or do we say to people, have a cap on what I judge you can handle, and after that, no more? That's tough questions for us to begin to see. Do we lambast Lydia for being in a business position, for pushing that and offering it to the work of the gospel? Of course not. And why is that? Because there's something here that we long to see in the lives and in the practices of every business and every life. And it's the life of Jesus impacting her and setting that work apart. We've seen the surrender of herself and her resource and her influence over to God to serve people. We have the opportunity to decide what to do with what's in our hands. All of us. We all have so much. And it's our opportunity to come before God ourselves first and say, what would you have me do with this, God? How can that transform the world around us? 
I wonder, how do we encourage people to thrive in whatever field or sphere they're involved with to impact that area um, with the kingdom of God? How does generosity and justice, empowerment, looking out for one another, celebrating the success of others, preferring one another, believing in one another, start to change our offices, our workplaces, our homes? How does that turn up? How can we pray for people who have an incredible ministry in their offices? If we continue to be prayed, to be freed from that love of money, that deep part of us that seems to be drawn to greet as people. If we prayed to be released from that, just as anyone who has influence must know where that comes from and submit themselves to surrender that, then what, what is it that God might do with a heart that's set humbly? Could we be people of influence in our roles and our jobs that offer great wages to people? Could we offer solid contracts? Could we be part of minimizing poverty in Edinburgh by the choices that we make in the business world or the way that we support and speak of Christians in that world? You may be in business here, and like RJ Letourneau, perhaps God is saying, I need business people too. Entrepreneurial leadership in or out of business was recently marked as one of the nine marks of growing churches that we see in Scotland. That sense that there's always hope, that sense where we could create something, that sense that we could um, have a hope and a dream together. We want to encourage that. Anyone in the working place and in business specifically tonight, what is it that God is asking you to do with that position that you're in? Um, Because we all have the same opportunity with it. Finally, we see something around hospitality. So we've seen this amazing invitation We've seen this incredible entrepreneurship, and now we see hospitality in play. When I'm thinking about hospitality, I'm going back a little bit to when I was uh, in primary school. There was something really magical about sleepovers when you were in primary school. So I'm not talking about the high school all-night campouts with fights and tears and mayhem, kicking it back to primary school. So it looks a little bit like this. I'll just kind of take you in for a moment. You all arrive with this amazing deep politeness to the host family parents. You start to play some Mario Kart. It's good. You all hang out, calmly playing Mario Kart and the original Pokemon, and then later we'd play a bit of Warhammer, which was, um, that's as much vulnerability as I'm happy to give tonight. <laughs> it was all deeply immature until the older sister came in of the friend. Because it was guaranteed that one of your mates fancied the older sister. So she's the only person in that person's world, and she's popping her head in. The maturity level soar. We listen to Bach compare and contrast articles from The Guardian. We enter deeply into that. We're into Radio 4. It's brilliant. And she'd, lay, she'd leave, and then you'd assess what you're going to do, the level of sweets you've got. You'd fire on Zoolander. Um, we'd finish Zoolander. Then we'd stay up till 2 because Takeshi's Castle was on at 2 a.m. And then we'd chat until about 3 until every guy had told us who they fancied and what the situation was. Except the one who fancied the older sister, because they'd be crippled quietly in the corner. You were terrified when one of the grown-ups had to pop their head in early to keep it down, and then the person who was trying to keep an edgy or keep an eye out was going to get pranked later that night. And we had these amazing times, these great memories growing up, and it 
was all just happening in someone's living room and home. Hospitality just seems to happen when we open up the doors of our homes. And we've got great memories there. And maybe now for you, this is around the table. What is your table like? There's great questions about Edinburgh at times. People often can feel that a sense of community can lack. I often talk to folks and they say, it took me about a year to settle into Edinburgh. And it took me a while to learn that there was a space where I belonged. It took time to connect with people. There can be a, a busyness and a fullness that dominates the calendars or just squeezes the margins of time towards the edge of the page that little bit further and we can feel overwhelmed. But we see, look at Lydia. She opened up her home and created this powerful sense of hospitality and welcome that enabled the spread of the gospel. It enabled the people serving God to be refreshed, to be encouraged. I think we know the beauty of sharing life with friends and welcoming people into our homes. I know so many people here who have transformed other people's lives because they offered them a table. Nothing more, nothing less. The table, the welcome, the conversation. Soul food is a really amazing example of that. In our church every week, we serve um, different folks in the community, homeless, vulnerable folks, a meal every Saturday night. And a wonderful team of people put that on every week consistently. And that is about the table. It's a welcome, it's a meal, and it's a place of acceptance. It's an absolute symphony of hospitality being brought from the tables of our own congregation's homes into this space. Friends, we get to be the community that we found lacking when we arrived in this city. We create the welcome for others. That's part of the beauty of being the church. That's a simple thing. John Stott puts this. He shares that first God opens up the heart, then God opens up the home. As you open up your home, how could we see God opening up people's hearts? So we see this culture and this context that was dripping in Rome, established in the wild. People going down by the river to pray. We see a pioneering church bubbling up down by those rivers. We see an invitation to share, to speak, to listen, an unveiling of Jesus. We see an entrepreneur, a pioneering businesswoman, enabling the work of the kingdom, using her network, using that place of influence that she'd been in, giving it over to God, surrendering it back. We see hospitality creating and transforming people's lives. I wonder tonight, where do you need to set out and journey? Is there a clear tug, a clear call that you've neglected and you know the way? You just need that motivation. Is there anything that you forgot to pioneer? Is there something that was a dream or something that was a hope or just a choice that you needed to make about starting something new, leaving something else behind perhaps to start something new? Is there an entrepreneurial method of engaging life that might create or transform society? You might hear information about poverty or about an issue of injustice that strikes your heart. And is that an area that needs entrepreneurial methods to begin to create momentum and transformation in that space. 
Are we creating spaces of hospitality? First God opens the, opens the heart, then we open the home. 